Insight into instruction, combining and cultivating conversations between instructors and students. Hey, welcome to Triple I Insight into Instruction. My name is Jamie. I'm Annabelle. And I'm Fabulous, but you can call me Thomas. So we finish our first week of our six-week summer semester 2022. We have quickly delved into the text Assessing English Language Learners, Bridges to Education Equity, Connecting Academic Language Proficiency to Students' Achievement, second edition by Margot Gottlieb. This week, we will be discussing Chapter 3, Assessment of the Language of the Content Areas. In TL305, Fundamentals of Instruction, the class that started it all, we were assigned five formative assessments. We chose to take the readings and utilize pure discourse in order to glean more from the content, and so our podcast was created. This semester, our class Teach Learn 409, Teaching English Language with Learners, we will be doing reflections for our formative assessments Each week, we will read the assigned readings in Gottlieb, and then note how each chapter has several embedded reflection sidebars, as well as a closing section for reaction and reflection. Finally, we'll choose one or more of those ideas in any of those areas and hone in on it for our podcast. This week, our professor, Dr. Steve Morrison, provided a possible connection to get our thinking started that reads, Much of the talk about academic language has a natural tie-in with the literacy ideas and activities that Holly shared. It is entirely fine to consider how the two speak to similar or different ways of understandings and engaging students with academic language across the content areas. For our responses, we will be verbalizing what is called a 3 one where we each choose three takeaways from the text, two applications of how those could be used, and one question regarding information in the text on which we would like more clarification. So for my reflection for my three, two, one, I didn't stick in one section long enough to find one little sidebar. So I have three takeaways from all of it, two applications from part of it, and one question from another part. So for my first takeaway, um, under the mathematics portion of adapting um, language to ELLs and mathematics, there's this quote said that language and culture goes hand in hand for mathematics, as well as all content areas. There are cultural links to learning. Not only are there cultural views of learning mathematics, but there's also cultural relevant ways of teaching it. And this really opened my eyes and helped me reflect back to our math class with Professor Tara. She helped us making mathematics accessible to children and making it relevant to their lives and their culture versus just teaching them formulas, statistics, and just trying to get the answer right. It's more about thinking deeply about it. Then my second uh, takeaway is also still in the mathematics section, which is at the very end. It states that unlike language proficiency, when addressing achievement Teachers ask whether students know their number facts and can prove theorems or apply the correct formulas. However, what is often not considered is that linguistic complexity of math story problems, especially on high-stakes tests, negatively impacts English language learners' math achievement. So what that's really saying is that we are teaching formulas, we are teaching theorems and applying knowing their number facts, but we're not teaching the heart of the problem to help them succeed on those mathematic standards, which is 
helping break down those mathematical story problems, helping them understand the language that goes into math, not just learning a formula, not just learning a number of fact, but actually able to break it down the math into an understanding that they fully get. There was another table in this chapter that really stated, which really hit home, was that like there are so many different ways that the word table is used across all content areas, like the table that we currently have in our homes, or the table that is on a document, or a many other tables I can't think of right now. Table of contents. Table of contents. Um, <laughs> can't think of all the other ones. So I found where it stated that on page 71, there is like in science, there's a periodic table like water table and language arts, like table of contents, like Jamie stated, um, and table for discussion. There is in social studies, there's like a tabletop or a plateau. Um, and then there's also in math, times table, data table. So just the word table needs to be broken down for them easier. And that quote that I found was on page 72. And then my last takeaway before applications is on page 78, which really goes into language arts. We learned this in David's class, David Erdwin. He taught us that language, the ELA that we currently teach to people who are learning English, just English, no other languages, is a lot different from someone who's learning English on top of another, another language they already currently had. And this quote really stuck with me. So linguistic and cultural uh, diverse students who have more than one language in common translinquently transfer or translanguaging the international interchange of languages is bound to occur, which basically this is saying that using their full language repertoire, students are able to maximize their understanding and communicate more efficiently because they have both of those languages. They're able to grab those parts of the language that they already know. So like cognates, um, there's a lot of uh, cognates that are really similar between different languages. There are the affixes, there are the suffixes that bridge that gap between languages that they can really pull from. And so that was just really awesome just to say that they still could help break it down as long as we help scaffold them. Yeah, that makes me think of the article that we read in uh, this class about oral language and how they had stated if you don't have English at home basically then you're going to be grades behind but they didn't state that you might have a completely different language at home that still has a base level that you can scaffold from in order to learn a new language that was such an interesting thing that it would come from someone who, uh, who did Lexia and and um, Rosetta Stone. Right. And understandably, it's definitely a more academic thing. But I, I love that they state that they here. Were, and what this book is really talking about is looking at it from a um, asset base versus like the article deficit. you were references was looking at it from a deficit. Like saying if you have X, Y, and Z, you are more likely not to succeed. Which this is saying you have X, Y, and Z, but this is how you can adapt and then also kind of have more in your repertoire and be not smarter, but you have more of an ability to be had a flexible thinking between languages, kind of like transcends 
but just having them them single language. Who doesn't want to be bilingual or multilingual? Oh my goodness, right. I can only imagine. There was one time that was really explained to me about uh, languages, and it was uh, Sarah Theberg in my earlier child education class, and she said to have multiple languages. Is like, if you're just having English, you're literally just going down the same slope over and over and over again. And you're being compacted every time you go down. But if you have multiple languages and you start off really young, you're, it's easier to transition to that next side to go down a different path. But if you wait until later, it's really hard to get out of that rut and go to that new path. And so once you've built multiple paths, it's easier for you to bounce back and forth because paths are laid. And like the mm -hmm. pathways in your brain are, mm -hmm. it's easier when you're younger to be able to branch out from that. And also like that flexible thinking really does transcend not only in language, but every other content area, which languages and all content areas. But it really helps with that flexible thinking, helping with that problem solving, helping with that um, just brain development in general. That brings me to my two applications, which is actually in the science section on page 82. And it really talks about, and I, I, I love tech, so this was a no brainer for me, but it's something I will do every single day in my class is adding the visuals, those combined with audio input to make any instruction I'm doing really meaningful. Because I am a visual and auditory learner and I cannot I do learn really well from a teacher standing up and talking to me, but I learn even more if there's pictures, if there's someone, a video, if there's a demonstration, like seeing multiple aspects through my eyes and also through my ears works really well for me versus reading just a book. So I want to make sure I have the opportunity for all my students, especially for my multilingual students. And another application that I have is on page 86 is that one set of strategies is cooperative learning structures that help organize social interaction with classrooms. And we've heard this from Gisla, we've heard it from David, that discourse, student discourse, student discourse, student discourse, think, pair, share, get the students talking to each other, have them have those creative discussions, because what it shows is that cooperative learning promotes academic conversations among students, increases their metacognitive awareness, and encourages friendships. Incorporated into a classroom routine, these strategies are useful for instruction and assessment across curriculum and have a broad application, kind of like I was talking about by being multilingual, you have that flexibility. But really, be able to talk to each other, you're actually just gaining all those cultures from each other and able just to have this open communication. Like for our podcast, our three brains are better than one. For my one question, which is going to be a question I constantly have is that how am I, one teacher, supposed to do all of this with the minimal time I have planning? Because I know that elementary teachers only get approximately 30 to 45 minutes to do all their planning a day. And that also involves like student conferences, that involves meeting with parents, that involves meeting with principals, administration, your PLC. Just how? I want, and I want to do all of this I just want to be able to do it effectively and to the scope of what the students actually need. And also not to kill myself while doing it. Preferably. Yeah, I want to sleep. I do want to sleep eventually. Right. One day.
So kind of opposite of Thomas, I decided to really zoom in on one sidebar specifically, which actually all takes place within one paragraph that's right above the prompt. So to get us started, it's on page 80, and it's about examining the academic language of science. You're doing science, not math? I just decided to broaden my horizons. Uh, I almost did go with math one, so I'm really glad that you went into that a bit earlier. I like to change up. Go ahead. Yeah, so this one was talking about examining the academic language of science. So the prompt reads, what might be specific challenges of the sentence structures to ELLs in this informational paragraph? Don't worry, I'll read you the paragraph in a minute. For instance, there are multiple examples of definitional language and an instance of passive voice within a complex sentence. Where do you see metaphorical language? Discuss how this passage might be applied to classroom assessment of content and language. Now, what was interesting to me about this was this, so far, we have talked a lot about assessment, but now it's talking about academic text in relation to assessment hmm. and how that can actually hinder the learning because of how this is written. So the first sentence, just to kind of get us in the ballpark. It's talking about coral reefs, but it starts out with dazzling living jewels fill the warm, shallow seas of the tropics. And while that sounds really beautiful, if you are an ELL student and you read that, I would not think the first thing was coral reefs. Dazzling living jewels, that could literally, they could think that there's like rocks down there that are alive and just actually dazzling. Or do they even know what dazzling means? Right. Right. Like when you first said that, if I didn't know Coral Reef, I was thinking dazzling something in the sky, like a jewel right. in the sky, like a diamond. Right. Or a star. And then it says, in the clear sunlit waters, large colonies of animals called corals have built underwater walls and platforms known as reefs. The reefs are made from the hard, bony skeletons of the corals. As some corals die, others grow on top of them until spectacular underwater cities are formed. Coral reefs are among the world's oldest ecosystems. Now, what hopped out to me right away as I was reading this is the last sentence should have been the first sentence. You don't know that it's coral reefs until about halfway through that paragraph. And even then, you don't really get a lot of it. The metaphor is great for those who already know a little bit about coral reefs and are looking at it with a foundation of academic language already there. But if this was my first introduction to coral reefs, I would have no idea what you were trying to teach me. It is way too flowery. Alrighty, so my takeaways I slightly touched on, but a lot of it had to do with the language being used, of course. And the first one was that the me metaphors were too long. I think metaphors can really help with imagery for students who already have that linguistic foundation built. But it was not helpful in this case because of how much you had to wade through in order to get to the core content. We have the area where it says built underwater walls and platforms known as reefs. We also have it where it's referred to as colonies of animals. And there's this big hoopla around trying to make it sound like you're talking about cities and all of that, which is great for imagining it, but not great for grasping it from a science perspective to me. Uh, my second takeaway was essentially just go off of that same idea that it's overly de detailed and that ultra specific language that is amazing for literature and for language development down the road is not necessary for academic understanding. And if we're going to be designating time to complex words and phrases, those complex words and phrases in science should be the key terms. Mm -hmm. Students should not have to wade through dazzling jewels to find out coral reefs and ecosystems. I mean, those I wanna, words are the area of focus. I want to wade through dazzling jewels. <laughs> right? Um, and then the third one was the paragraph organization. It was very 
storytelling and much less informational, which was weird to me. Once again, I guess that could be great for some students, but I think for our ELLs, it really takes a long time to get to the meat of what this was even supposed to be about. And we don't get a, like an end or a conclusion or main takeaway until the very, very end. And at that point, I would have been so confused and just shut down already. So those are my major takeaways as to how this was detrimental. And they never really review like a real definition of what coral is. They say that it's an animal and that there's a skeleton and that it breaks down and then it's built on top of. But if it's an animal, how is it eating? What is it doing? Like there's so much more to that that's not touched on. So now to kind of move away from that critical view that I had in the takeaways, I decided to spend my time with the applications looking at how I can use the information here that I didn't necessarily want to have in my classes and how I can make it better for my ELLs. So my first major application was the importance of differentiating text and teach what you want students to learn, pulling necessary excerpts from the text. I realized I always learned more from teachers who created their own worksheets or made just our assignments more personal in general, who use those textbooks as a resource, not the main guide. And so I think for one, that makes it more engaging and the teacher knows the material better, but also it takes away this chance of ELL slipping through the cracks, spending all their time wading through this swamp of language when it can be differentiated and focused down so they can spend the time really knowing, for this example, what ecosystems and coral reefs are. Mm -hmm. So that was my first application. And the second one was more so about how to go about doing textbook reading with ELLs especially, to make it so they have a better understanding of it because, yes, like I mentioned, a lot of times it would be best if you could just differentiate the text yourself and make it more easily readable. But as Thomas mentioned earlier in this podcast, sometimes you don't have the time and sometimes eventually those students are not going to have you there to help differentiate and they're going to need to know how to wade through the dense text. And so I was talking about potentially going through and using the same, the same text but bolding the important elements or bolding key terms, underlining and annotation uh, strategies, and then within assessments, just not to have textbook language. The assessments, when you are, when you personally are gauging their understanding, there is not a need to have somebody else's type of writing in there because that's an unnecessary barrier. And if we're really going to bring in metaphors, because that was something in here that was kind of seen as a disservice, but I know metaphors can be really helpful yeah. for understanding concepts once you have that foundation built. I was thinking it would be really cool to have the students come up with their own metaphors about it because then they're making those personal connections and can learn from their peers instead of somebody telling them that coral reefs are like a city. Because if they don't understand or find that connection, it's just going to add to confusion. Yeah, the connection really needs to be connected to the student. Like really what I took away from my takeaway about the culture and like it needs to be culturally well relevant. So yes, you could start with cities, but what if they don't live in a city? Right. So like if it's not a city and they've never seen a tall, tall building where it, things are built on top of each other, then how else can you and the student together creating that metaphor together so they understand the correlation to something that they actually understand? And understanding... Too. Oh, sorry. Just understanding what a metaphor is in general mm -hmm is something that you could teach all by itself. Definitely. And that mm. kind of, I mean, that was perfect transition because here's my question. From a language learning perspective, we must think about the ability to identify versus the ability to recognize meaning. 
students can identify words long before they can identify that word in its meaning and all of its form, like you mentioned the table, Thomas. So my question was, imagery and metaphors can be extremely beneficial for lots of students while baffling others. How do we go about teaching such complex subjects to our students, specifically within written word? So imagery, metaphors, mm -hmm. idioms, those things that are prevalent in a lot of our language, how do we go about teaching those specifically with Yale's in mind? Right, especially because they seem like tricks. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, and and especially when you come to idioms, it's such a weird thing to think of like, it's raining cats and dogs because you get all these logical thinkers who are literally waiting for that to oh there's come. cats and dogs falling outside yeah come flying down or even just the nuances of language when it comes to the things that you say to your students that aren't even necessarily idioms per se everybody take a chair mm -hmm. and everybody looks at you grabs a chair and walks around wondering where you want them to take it so it's those tiny tiny things that can completely throw off a student when it comes to language. Language is so nuanced and it's hard. It's hard. So un the bolding text and the underlining and the annotation is like, first of all, super helpful. But second of all, because you know your student with their language and their levels, you're able to really, really scaffold all of that information for them because you know them personally and you know where they're at. And that's the unfortunate part about what we're seeing sometimes is that teachers, they don't even know who their EL students are. So they're not able to provide any of those building blocks for them to be successful. Right. And something I noticed, like you were bringing up and you had that question, made me think about our class, for, our art class with Deanna Day, and we're doing a sketch note. And that really helps each student individualize what they're reading and create something that is not just language, but also visuals for their understanding. So they can take this sea of academic language and kind of break it down for themselves. I think that's a really interesting way to, visual, like you were saying, visualize the concept because what got me, especially with this piece of text, was that these metaphors were being present in written form. When metaphors or idioms, when they're being said verbally, it's a lot easier to pick up on the nuance of the tone of what the person is saying or the gestures and stuff like that that can make it really easier to pass by with a shallow understanding of what they're trying to convey versus in written word there is no there's none of that personality mm -hmm. you are looking at this and a lot of times if it's in a textbook you're expected to take it as fact or so just, when you have a metaphor in there it just makes it a little bit well think of any level one two or three who reads that complex uh complex paragraph and like even the fact that it said they are like cities they might know that word city because it could have a cognate and they're like hold up there are these living buildings underground that are like have people in it i don't know like right. it, it might come off a very a stray thing and that that's not what they were mm -hmm. intending and so instead of actually picking up that there's an ecosystem under the water that coral reefs are that are made there are reefs made of coral and they're built up top of each other there's just way it was explained was just it's very interesting well it's removing the content mm -hmm. in a way where you're putting so many things that it's like di diluting it under flowery language yeah it sounds pretty for a native english speaker right but if I was learning, if I was a level three or four, that would be hard. I would not fully understand what is exactly happening in that paragraph. Right. And I was even thinking outside of the ELL bubble, because that's where our main focus is. But all students in general, 
I know there's some that if they don't excel in ELA, that should not be something that's hindering their ability to succeed in science. Mm-hmm. And this is another layer in, in the frame of assessment. You want to really be targeting those specific skills. And this is not doing that. I don't want my science students' grades to reflect their ability to read an English text. That's This is an English class. And while it's important to have those overlaps in subjects and teach them intersectionally, it's not done like this. I think assessment needs to be much more targeted mm-hmm. and differentiated, as we mentioned. Yes, thousand percent. The first takeaway I chose comes from the section, The Language of Language Arts, and it's just based around applying the key use of argumentation to instruction and assessment. So the first takeaway I have about that is just sort of breaking down that there's those four language domains when it comes to ELA, the listening, speaking, reading, and writing. And then what's interesting is it's similar to the WIDA key language uses, which are the narrate, inform, explain, and argue. Mm -hmm. But then there are four key uses of academic language for the Common Core state standards, which are the discussion, explanation, argumentation, and recount. Um, And so the discussion is sort of that comparison, the explanation is that description, argumentation is justifying, and then recount is sort of that recap. So what I think about argumentation is the benefits of these are because of that requirement of understanding the content. You can't have an argument without having anything to back that up. So you can say things, but you're not really justifying that information without either doing research or whatever it may be. So if the student doesn't understand or didn't read the text, it's going to be difficult for them to justify Mm -hmm. and they won't be able to show their learning. So the first application that I kind of see using that argumentation into a class could be done just by reading a book. So right now I'm on a refugee immigrant kick where a lot of my lesson plans and unit plans are based off of just educating on that. Um, So we could use a book about refugees and then have that talk, pair, share conversation, provide sentence frames on that. Then the students can be prompted to make a claim and use the text to back up that information. And so the writing piece is something that I actually did in my lit plan last semester, where they use an opinion piece based off of what we could do for our schools to help support either new or current refugees and immigrants. And that would be like basically at the very end of the unit after learning about all of the different nuances when it comes Mm -hmm. to that trauma. So in this case, students would be prompted to make a claim use again that, in my opinion, so you're using that um, justification kind of thing, reason one, reason two, reason three, and then restating that opinion. But you're writing that so that you can really show that you're understanding the piece that you're talking about. I really like how you talked about um, talking about that having, like, you cannot have an argument without having any knowledge. You could, anyone can have an argument without having any knowledge, but you can't have an effective, informed argument without at least having the basis knowledge to figure out what is going on within uh, what you're going to write. And if you can't, you have like, you have to have that base knowledge. 
And I really loved how you have to have that. Then you have to justify it. And that's a great assessment tool that I really like. Definitely. And while justification is something that I feel like I remember hearing a lot more in ELA, and it is a huge concept of opinion pieces and of proving knowledge within English language arts, it's also the meat and potatoes of our middle school level endorsement right now. We have been doing a lot of work in the math department about justification, and we just wrapped up reading an article called Justification as a Teaching and Learning Practice in its Potential Multifaceted Role in Middle Grades Mathematics Classroom uh, by Megan Staples, Joanna Bartlow, and Eva Thanheiser. And it is really interesting because it talks about justification and the difference between justification and proof. But like you were talking about, how justification can really showcase student knowledge and student sense making outside of just procedure and outside of just being able to perform a skill, but really deeply understand that skill. Well, and you can't have an argument with, like you were saying, Thomas, you can't have an argument without something backing up when it comes to especially something academic. Now yes. you can have it in everyday conversation, but at the same time, who's going to take someone seriously if one, they don't have anything to back it up or two, what they have to back it up isn't a reputable source. Right. Yes. Or if every statement starts with, well, I feel like. Mm -hmm. Which is more of an opinion. Yes. I feel like this and that's, you've got that, but you aren't backing things up with fact. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you had to have some type of evidence, some type of facts to be able to have that argument, especially an academic. Like when I said that anyone could have the argument, but I say anyone can argue, right. but to have that academic discourse, you have to have the basis because you can't be talking about, let's say, I don't know, I'm saying quantum physics, but if you don't know anything about quantum physics, you're going to have an argument about it. So Definitely. And it can be brought up as early as kindergarten. Justification in depth, if not preschool, you guys did preschool more, but justification is something that because of its link, especially in math, I'm going to go on a little math tangent, because justification is so tied to the same idea as proofs and proofs have the stigma of like being scary. And we only really start seeing them around high school. If it's integrated and seen as just a way of proving your thought process and showing your sense-making as early as kindergarten, we can get much deeper mathematical understanding and much deeper math confidence with students much earlier on, which is really great and a great way to assess. Well, that's something that I did last semester was the which one doesn't belong. And just something as simple as four shapes with four colors that just look a little bit different and having to have a student look at that and back up why that one doesn't belong, but none of them are wrong. You just have to have something to back yourselves up that makes sense mm -hmm. and being able to do something as simple as that fosters that understanding of justification and having that those facts to back up your claims. 100%. So then the second takeaway is around the section focused on social studies. So um, a quote that really resonated with me was from page 84, and it reads, we must begin with an ELL's world base, connect with prior knowledge, language, and culture, and expand on what he or she knows. Do teachers realize that the Vietnam War to a Vietnamese student is the American War? Instead of presenting information for a single perspective, seize the teachable moment to probe deeper. In this instance, teacher may ask the students, why do you think the war has two names? Or how might you compare the war from two different perspectives? So again, when we go back to, this is definitely connected to refugees, but also people who have just are looking 
not as mirrors, but as windows or whatever it may be, or even sliding glass doors when with everything that's going on, they're experiencing things through their parents and their parents have family over there. And so they're, it's a really rough thing that's happening right now. And this is something that really should be utilized within the classroom right now. But having these books and art and video explanation and poetry and history in order for them to, I guess, delve into this information in a more artistic way when you can't utilize language mm -hmm. is super important to me. And granted, we are talking about language, obviously, so they do need to be able to verbalize their understanding and having these discourses, which is actually my third takeaway, having discourses like you were talking about earlier, literally one of the same quotes, is just being able to focus on that cooperative learning and academic talk that's intentionally planned. Now, the reason that I think that the intentional planning is so important is because when we get into these really social justice or hard topics like the war that's happening currently, because people have trauma, it's really important that we are very cognizant of where they are yes. and knowing our students personally and knowing what their families are mm -hmm. going through and knowing their culture and knowing all of that is so, so important. But then it gives us the opportunity to provide them with that talk between people who may be going through the same thing or people who don't understand it but want to. And something that I want to just add is that there are state standards that require us to teach current world problems, mm -hmm. what is going on in the world right now. And unfortunately, it is a war, but it's our job to give the knowledge over because whether we know it or not, students know what's going on, whether they hear it from parents, whether they hear it from their neighbor, the news, the, the news, mm -hmm. the background, the newspaper they may see. You might see the big who reads the news, who actually reads the newspaper nowadays. But like there's information at your hand most times to all people, but even our mm -hmm. students. And if we are not giving them the information of what's going on, not necessarily all of the nit and gritty, the, the, the horrendous facts about it, but also just like what's really just going on over there mm -hmm. and what's happening and why, what's like, what is the reasoning? And then they can also have some discussion about it and use art to explain some of those really hard feelings and really things that they, it's really hard to express even, express even with academic language. Um, so I just wanted to say that one little tidbit. Yeah, it's, well, like, I'm... it's required for us to actually teach that stuff. Right. right. And consider the kids who are like the three of us where discourse is a huge part of our learning style mm -hmm. that we can't remember information when we're reading it from a book, like you said before, Thomas, but we can remember it when we look at the book and we talk about what we're reading, mm -hmm. because for me, that solidifies the information in my mind and in my memory when I talk about it. And I'm able also to kind of suss out the content with other people and through your understanding, you can help others, but Transversely, mm -hmm. others can help you and that can spark something within you or something within your mind and help you continue on with that conversation. Right. Because it becomes our learning and our understanding instead of just the consumption of somebody else's ideas, which is how it can feel when you read books by yourself. Because in a room, there are close to 30 wonderful, beautiful brains and 30 
uh, I'm just gonna say 30, 30 unique cultures that all have their unique perspectives, their unique histories, and their unique outlook on whatever life is, and they bring that into the classroom, there has to be discourse around that. Mm-hmm. And it's not just, there's not no one right answer, there's no right, wrong answer, we're just giving the facts and allowing children to express what's really going on within them and within the world around us. And you're supporting their culture. We're supporting who they are by saying this is something that's happening. And Mm -hmm. by just by, there's a word that I'm thinking of, but I can't. Validate Yeah. Well, yes. Validate of her building bridge (laughs) for sure. Thank you, Dr. Holly. But yeah, I mean, it is a validation for sure. Not the word I was looking for, but you're just stating like, I see you, I hear you, I understand that this is something that's either happening to you directly or indirectly because of your culture and you are, you're valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my question is very simple. In my first and second year, I do know that there's going to be a lot of time where I am lesson planning, including the summers. So how can I ensure that I'm scaffolding for every language level, for every subject with a limited amount of time, like Mm -hmm. you said, Thomas? And then what are some resources that would be helpful for new teachers in general to write scaffolded unit and lesson plans from scratch? Because yes, there are going to be a lot of places that just give us a curriculum and then we have to modify it in order to include these things into it. So build on that. But there are other schools where they're just literally going to tell us, here's a blank piece of paper, create a lesson plan. Or here's the standards. Please teach these standards. No curriculum. Mm -hmm. These are standards we want you to focus on. Now figure out how you're going to teach them. Right. It's kind of like what we're doing right now. We have a topic, we go find those standards, and we're going to figure out a plan. And how many hours and days are we taking? Just for one. complete one. Just for one. You know, it's hard. And obviously, practice will make as close to perfect as is possible. And as years go by, you will have these units and stuff created. So you'll already have some of this scaffolded for at least the students you have. Mm -hmm. Right. You could take that wherever they, those students that you had the year before and scaffold it for your new students. Right. Mm -hmm. But year one, year two, you're going to be making making You're making from scratch. That's why they say teachers sometimes get burnt out the first two years because so much you put on their plates and, but there's also so much that's happening during that time. So my question is, at the end of this, Dr. Steve Morrison, would you like to be on our podcast to answer our questions? <laughs> yes, please. As always, we suggest that you read this text and come up with your own three, two, ones. As well, if you are a pre-service or in-service teacher, we would love for you to comment or email at insightintoinstruction at gmail.com with your thoughts, feelings about the conversation, and or answers to the questions we brought up. We appreciate you and value your respectful thoughts and opinions. Thanks so much for listening and being part of the Triple I Pod Squad. coming along with us on this academic journey. Click that follow button so you can join us next time for more ins and outs of education, past, present, and future.